This is Nightmares of the Americas, Indigenous Tales. The show will start in three, two, one. Welcome, everybody, to Nightmares of the Americas, Indigenous Tales. I'm Joseph. And I am Gabriel. How are you doing at the end of this wonderful, amazing week, Gabe? I'm de- <laughs> I can tell that was a sarcastic tone in your voice. It was very sarcastic. I feel like <laughs> I feel like complete just dog doo-doo. Um, oh, that's this, not good. This week has treated me like a dirty diaper. Ugh. I want to be treated like a dirty diaper. Yep. So that's how it goes sometimes. And then you just wake up and smile in the mirror. I'm like the Joker. I just... I go like this and push my cheeks up and just force myself to smile. (laughs) Or I get out of the shower and then I go to the mirror and I do a little circle eye, circle eye, and then a big smiley face. And then I wipe it and I'm all sad again. (laughs) Fake it, fake it, fake it. Then you walk out the door (laughs) and it's all, hi, Bill. That's my neighbor. (laughs) Oh, get in the paper, are we? Oh, I see you're having a cup of coffee. (laughs) Then you get in your truck and it's all. Why do they always send the poor? Why do they always send the poor? Why? <laughs> it's completely relatable. I understand how you feel. Yes, that's my day. That's been my week. Yeah, but it's <sighs> over. And then we, in a few I days, know. we get to start another week. Start all over. Don't do that. Time <laughs> is a social construct that I do not like. Time is stupid. When you show up late to work, just tell your boss that. Or I'll be here you're late again. You know, time is a social construct, and I don't subscribe to it. I, and then just moonwalk out of the room. <laughs> then they'll be just like, he knows how to moonwalk. I'm like, guys, man, look cool. at that guy. He's, he's pretty cool. <laughs> Pull a cigarette out of the back of my ear, put it in my mouth, light it as yeah. I'm moonwalking. It's all, man, how did he do that? He's old school. He has a menthol. How do you get those in California? Oh, man, the black market. That's I know. That's what you got to do. <laughs> so stupid. We're going to ban menthol cigarettes because kids are smoking cigarettes. No, they're not. They're smoking weed and vaping. You're stupid. Yeah, they want all those uh, fun flavors. They don't want menthol or the regular cigarettes. No. They're all like, oh, give me a menthol, pops. What is this in the 1940s? Mostly it's like, oh, look, Gramps over here is analog. <laughs> all right, get out of here with your old digital cig- cigarettes. Since we recorded last, we went trick-or-treating. And we picked our winners for our giveaway. Thank you again, everyone, for entered. We had so many people enter that giveaway. And that was on TikTok and Instagram at Indigenous underscore Tales. So you can go ahead and check all that stuff out because we do, like Gabriel said, we do random giveaways. Yeah, so go ahead and go to YouTube. Check us out, Indigenous underscore Tales. We don't have full videos up yet, but we do have like 10, 15-minute videos, something like that. Just a little taste of what we have on the show. So go ahead and look out for those. And also, if you want to check out some of those cool t-shirts, sweaters, any of the designs for our merch store, go ahead and go to indigenoustales.threadless.com and sign up for the mailing list. And they'll give you 20% off your first purchase. And it'll also notify you when we do have sales. And I think from the rest of, for the rest of the year, we'll start posting regularly when the sales start and end. So you guys can get some cool goodies before the year is up. Yeah. Lastly, if you could do us a favor and leave a review on iTunes and rate us five stars and go to Spotify or any of the other ones, rate us five stars and screenshot that, send it to info at com with your mailing address and your alias, and we'll shoot you out some free stickers. Okay. Well, let's get into the show. So today we're going to do a little redo. A redo oh, yeah. part one. <laughs> That's what I'm going to just name. Redo part one. <laughs> no, then no one will know what we're talking about. So our first episode that we ever dropped was a little over a year ago, and it was the Wendigo. And we talked about the Cree people. We talked oh, about yeah. uh, some of the stories that have to do with the Wendigo. And then Gabe got into a pretty cool story and encounters, I believe, of the Wendigo. So I listened. I think mm-hmm. I, lis- I listened to that show. <sighs> maybe a week ago because my wife was just listening to it while she was folding laundry. And I was like, what is that? And mm-hmm. she's all, that's your first episode. And I was all, <laughs> Oh, stop listening to it. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah. All, yeah all, all, who are those guys? We're glad like the, the original people who listen to us. Thank you so much. Cause it was a, it was a rough listen. Yeah. You got us to where we are now. <laughs> 
So the Cree describe the Wendigo as a malevolent supernatural being associated with winter, famine, and cannibalism. In the Cree culture, the Wendigo is generally viewed as a dangerous and malevolent spirit or entity. The Wendigo is typically seen as a force that embodies greed, insatiable hunger, and the consequences of resorting to cannibalism. It is often associated with the extreme cold and harsh winters. They also believe that it is thought that a person can become a Wendigo or be possessed by its spirit. This transformation is often attributed to desperate circumstances, extreme hunger, and a willingness to commit acts of cannibalism. The Wendigo is said to have sunken eyes, long limbs, and sometimes possessing antlers or other animal-like features. It is said to have an insatiable appetite consuming both flesh and souls. That's a damn soul eater. Whoa. That's crazy. Some say that this is merely a false creature. It's just there as a cautionary tale, serving as a warning against mm-hmm. what happens when you re- when you resort to cannibalism, even in the direst of circumstances. It is considered to be a grave taboo and a violation of natural and spiritual law. In some Cree stories, individuals seeking the help of spiritual leaders or medicine men to protect themselves or their communities from the attacks of the Wendigo. Rituals and ceremonies may be performed to counteract its evil influence. It can also be a symbol of greed, representing excessive consumption, greed, and the danger of prioritizing material wealth over the well-being of the community and the natural world. There's also cultural teachings about the stories of the Wendigo where he serves, where the Wendigo serves as a tale of moral lessons within the Cree. They emphasize the importance of the community, respect for natural resources, and the consequences of straying from traditional values. So we're going to talk about the Cree nation. So the Cree is the largest First Nations group in Canada, predominantly inhabiting regions across the country with over 350,000 individuals claiming Cree ancestry. The majority of this population resides within Canadian borders. Specifically, most Cree communities are found north and west of Lake Superior, spanning pro- spanning provinces such as Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and the Northwest Territories. Roughly around 27,000 Cree call Quebec home. Now, in the U.S., the Cree historically inhabits area what areas westward from westward from Lake Superior. Presently, their primary community is in Manitoba, where they coexist with the Ojibwe or Chippewa people on the Rocky Boy Indian Reservation. Now, the Cree were historically a semi-nomadic people. Their lifestyle was influenced by their environment, which included vast forests prairies, and waterways across the northern region of North America. During certain times of year, the Cree engaged in nomadic activities for hunting, gathering, and seasonal resource exploitation. They follow the movement of wildlife such as moose, caribou, and fish to ensure a sustainable food supply. This nomadic lifestyle allowed them to adapt to changing environmental conditions and to make the best use of available resources. When they did practice their sedentary life during other parts of the year, they established semi-permanent or temporary settlements where they would engage in activities like fishing, harvesting plants, and processing resources obtained during their nomadic phase. These settlements were often located near waterways or areas with abundant natural resources. This kind of reminds me of the coastal Salish people. A little bit, yeah. How they would build these homes all around the waterways to, Mm -hmm. to maximize their resources. They would dwell in traditional housing called wigwams. So the construction of a Cree wigwam began with its framework, which was typically made of wooden poles. These poles were often flexible, allowing them to be bent together, bent and tied together at the top to create a dome-shaped structure. The framework provided the basic structure support for the wigwam. Once the framework was in place, the wigwam was covered with various materials. Birch bark was a commonly used material due to its natural waterproofing properties that also used animal hides, such as those from a deer or bison, as coverings. In some cases, woven mats made from reeds and other natural fibers were used. So they kind of used whatever they could use, but if the birch bark was there because it's waterproof, that was like number one top choice. 
But if not, they could put their they could put their animal hides over it as well. Yeah, they look really cool. I looked at pictures of them. Yeah, they're pretty awesome. Little dome shaped mm-hmm. huts. Yeah, they look cozy. The covering material was carefully secured to the framework using various methods. This can involve lashing, tying, or stitching the material in place to ensure a snug fit. This step was crucial in providing insulation and protection from the elements. They were round and oval. And this design allowed for an efficient use of materials and provided structural stability. The circular shape also held cultural significance, symbolizing unity and the cyclical nature of life. I like that. I love how there's so many different reasons for everything. Everything is not just, it doesn't just have one meaning. We do it this way because it helps us with our culture, our beliefs, our spirituality, and it represents something. Yeah, that's really cool. The dome-shaped structure of the wigwam was well-suited for shedding snow and rain, making it an effective shelter in various weather conditions. The curved surface also helped distribute the weight of accumulated snow, preventing collapse. A small low entrance was incorporated into the design, usually facing east. This allowed for easy access and proven protection from prevailing winds. The size of Cree wigwams could vary depending on the specific needs and preferences of the family or group using it. While some wigwams were relatively small and designed for a single family, larger versions could accommodate extended families or multiple related families. The height of a wigwam was typically determined by the length of the wooden poles used in its construction. This varied, but it was generally tall enough to allow occupants to stand and move comfortably inside. The interior of the wigwam was divided into living areas, often a raised platform or sleeping area along the perimeter provided a comfortable space for resting. The central area around the hearth was used for cooking and communal activities. One of the key advantages for the Cree wigwam was its ability to be easily disassembled and transported to different locations. This mobility was essential for Cree communities, allowing them to follow seasonal resources and maintain a suitable way of life. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. When you got to go, you got to go. Just take that wigwam down and head out. Yeah. They're like, oh, we're going to dip. And then all of a sudden you just, all right, let's go. And they just break that sucker down. So because they were semi-nomadic, they were hunter gatherers and the Cree were very skilled hunters and hunting played a crucial role in their way of life. Their hunting practices were shaped by their deep knowledge of the natural environment, including animal behavior, habitat, and seasonal movements. The Cree targeted a variety of animals for hunting, depending on their location and the time of the year. Common game animals included moose, caribou, deer, elk, bear, beaver, and there was some small game as well, such as rabbit, squirrels, and birds. Moose were a significant source of meat for the Cree. They are large herbivores found in forest regions, and their meat provided a sustainable and nutritious food source. So like a moose, we talked about it before. Moose are huge. Yeah, they are ginormous. And you got to take them down in groups, don't you? I don't think you could take it down by yourself. I don't know. I just know that uh, a moose, when you see them in up close, mm-hmm. it's it's terrifying. Because on TV, like right, you, you see a moose and you're like, oh, okay, it's like the size of a deer. Oh, no, it's not even the size of the horse. It's like a horse on steroids. It's like two horses together. Mm-hmm. Like they are massive, massive animals. And they're, they're amazing. Yeah, plus their antlers make them look even taller. For sure. Caribou, which are like reindeer, were another important game for the Cree. They were especially prevalent in northern regions and provided a valuable source for both meat and hides. Deer were a widely hunted animal due to their abundance of various habitats, including forest and grasslands, and their meat was a staple in the Cree diet. I could go for some deer. I think I'm going to get some next week. Some venison? Yeah, and some elk. Because speaking of elk, they're also very large creatures and they provided a lot of meat and they also used them for their hides. They occasionally hunted bear for the meat and hides. While bear meat was consumed, it wasn't really like a, a thing for in their diet. It was kind of like, oh, we're hungry. Ah, there's a bear. Let's go get the bear. There's a lot of meat. <laughs> I heard bears real fatty. I really wonder what it tastes like. Uh, you probably barely taste anything. I'm curious. <laughs> I barely knew her. Uh-huh. there we go <laughs> i don't know i'm curious of how it tastes though i don't think i'd like it because if it's real fatty i'm not i don't really care for that kind of meat but i'll taste it no i don't know somebody send us some bear meat let's take a quick break bloody fm presents hometown ghost stories a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week bringing you all the hauntings From haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. 
over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. (laughs) Yeah. So Cree hunters often employed stalking techniques, quietly approaching their prey to get it within range for an accurate shot. This required patience, stealth, and a deep understanding of animal behavior. But also used traps, particularly for smaller game like beaver and rabbit. These traps were typically made from natural materials found in the environment, such as wood and and reeds and all kinds of other stuff. Mm-hmm. Their tools that they would use were bow and arrows. So bows were a primary hunting tool crafted from wood and strung with sinew or plant fibers. I bet you the plant fiber strings, they probably weren't that good. You don't know? You don't think so? Not compared to sinew. That's the fiber from the tendons. Yeah, sinew is a way, way, way stronger. Yeah, I mean, you would get that and and dry it out and pull it and make like, oh man, that stuff is just ping. (laughs) Arrows were tipped with arrowheads made from stone, bone, or metal. In addition to bows, the Cree used spears and atlases, which were spear throwing tools for hunting larger game, especially in situations where close range encounters were possible. So they get close, they're throwing a spear at that sucker, or they have a tool that they could throw a spear spear at it with. I bet that's such an amazing feeling, hunting with a spear. <laughs> Just like, oh, like I got it. <laughs> well, after you catch it, because you're going to be quiet yeah. until you throw it at it. Yeah, like once you get it. I mean, you have to be really quiet. Mm-hmm. I mean, deer, you see deer, and all of a sudden you, you step on a leaf or a stick, a twig, and it cracks, and that deer pops its head. Oh, no, they're gone. It, and then all of a sudden, it's gone. Mm-hmm. And then it's gone. Then you can't, you're never going to see that deer again. <laughs> the hunting season was fall and winter. These seasons were important for hunting as animals were often more active, and their fur and meat provided valuable resources for winter survival. Large animals like moose and caribou were often targeted during this time because caribou, I mean, they're reindeers. They love the snow. Yeah. They're getting ready for Christmas. Spring and summer, it was more of an emphasis on gathering plants and fishing and preparing for the following winter. So they did hunt occasionally, but it was if it was necessary. Right. So if they're out there and they saw like a little, you know, small rodent or something, small game, they would they would get that. But mostly it was, let's go ahead and stock up our nuts, stock up our fruit, stock up all the stuff we have, get the fish ready, dry it out, and then prepare for winter when we're going to get the meat. Yeah. So after a successful hunt, Cree hunters carefully process the animal. This involves skinning, butchering, and dividing the meat, as well as utilizing all parts of the bones, sinew, and hides for everything we just talked about. Mm -hmm. And hunting held spiritual significance. And they often conducted rituals and ceremonies to honor the animal and seek their blessing for a successful hunt. These practices reflected their deep connection to the natural world. So we talked about a little about honey. Let's talk about some fishing because I'm a, I'm a fisher guy. Oh yeah. I love fishing. I want to go out one more time before the season's over, but dude, they're fishing like a thousand feet right now, man. Oh wow. My whole shoulder is going to fall off. I can't do that. <laughs> Gosh. That's so a, deep, man. That's the best. Though. That's the best way to go out. There. But they're pulling in some monsters, man. Mm-hmm. They're pulling in some monsters. Gosh. Like, like head bigger than my head. Gojira monsters. Like, like Ricky would have a hard time. It'd probably be almost as big as, as Ricky. <laughs> well, let's get back into this. So fishing played a crucial role in their way of life. Their techniques for fishing were developed based on behavior and habitats of fish in their local waterways. So they knew like they would watch the fish. Mm-hmm. And so, okay, the fish do this. So we know they do this. And if you ever talk to a fisherman, like I know bass guys, bass fishermen are like this, trout, everybody's like this. But a bass guy would be like, all right, so you gotta get your, so you gotta use a bait casting reel too. If you don't know how to use a bait casting reel and you're a bass <laughs> fisherman, don't talk to me. So you gotta get your bait caster out there and then you fling it. You gotta pop it right there, right in that little hole where you know that fish is gonna be. And then you gotta like, you gotta pop that, whatever you're using, a little jig or something, the way it needs to go. And then pop, you got your fish. So these guys knew exactly the same the same thing. Yeah. So they would use spears to catch fish in shallow waters. And the spearhead was typically a bone or antler, or it was a sharpened piece of wood, and it was attached to a wooden shaft. And then they would spear the fish right through the water and impale it. They would also use nets as a fishing tool. They crafted nets from materials such as plant fibers or sinew or animal tendons. 
And these nets were strategically placed in rivers and streams where they knew the fish were going to swim right into and then capture all their fish. Now, they also used hooks made from bone or wood, uh, along with lines made from natural fibers or plant materials. And these were used for fishing. So they would uh, use a method using bait to entice the fish, and then they would hook a fish, and just like we do, fishing. (laughs) They had that stinky bait. Oh, man, he's all, you got that one Indian over there, and he's all, I make my own catfish bait. Oh, man, you know, he go go to him over there. He makes his own catfish bait. Get a little bologna, put some cheese on it, rub it together, get all the catfish all season long. <laughs> and, and the good thing is you got a snack while you're waiting because you got bologna yeah. and cheese. <laughs> Two for one. Oh, man, I love bologna. <laughs> they would also construct fishing weirs and traps. And like we talked about other other um, indigenous people, the we about how they used weirs. They were little fences mm-hmm. built across rivers or streams, and they were essentially guiding fish into a confined area. And then once those fish are in that area, then they just start s- slapping those fish out, start get, grabbing them, or just start spearing them or catching them uh, a lot easier. And, and we went to Tahoe, and the salmon was running when we went to Tahoe. Oh, cool. And I'm telling you, I'll post some pictures. The salmon was running, and there wasn't a spot that there wasn't salmon. You just reach in the entire, the entire, yeah, the entire stream. Well, there was a bear right there, and he was just standing there, just going grab one, and then he'd <laughs> eat it, and then throw it, and then grab another one, and then eat it, and, and then like put it on the thing, and then you'd see these other animals run over there when the bear wasn't watching, and then snag his fish and take off. Oh. It was pretty cool. <laughs> Kristen has some really good pictures of that. Cool. She has her her Canon something with the telescoping lens and she has all the and I'm all National okay. Geographic camera. <laughs> yeah, I'm all. Do you need your tripod? She goes, Oh, I didn't bring it. I said, I was joking. Gosh, <laughs> like really? It's like Planet Earth. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> man. So I can imagine by doing this, you're making you're making the same kind of you're you're forcing all the fish to go in one area, and it's easier to collect. Yeah. Fishing baskets were also utilized, often designed with a shape that allowed water to flow through it while retaining the fish. Cool, like a big strainer. Yeah. (laughs) Spring and summer, while they're hunting and gathering and stuff like that, that's when they would mostly fish. Fish were more active during warm water temperatures, and the community creek communities would set up fishing camps near rivers, lakes, and streams to take advantage of this, of the abundance of fish. And when I say fish are more active in warmer water temperatures, what I'm really saying is that when the water's not frozen, the fish are moving because where <laughs> these people live, that water is cold. Yeah. Even, but fish, even I when mean, it's warm outside. That water's cold still. That, wa- that water is cold. Man, feels so good though. Mm-hmm. Fishermen also, they knew how, they knew where the fish would spawn and they knew there was like natural barriers in the waterway to make it easier for them to catch the fish. But they did practice sustainability because they wanted to come back and catch more fish, right? So you only take what you need for the community. And then because you know this little fishing hole, you know, the next year you guys could come back during the season, take as much as you need, and then the population is going to reproduce, and then it's going to keep going back and forth, back and forth, and then you have the sustainable practice. Yeah, and even thinking about it, taking what you need is still more than enough. You don't have to overtake and overtake and overtake. Like, take what you need. You're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. No, that's why if any of you guys are um, fungi aficionados like myself. Uh, I'm a fun If guy. you guys go mushroom. Oh, he's a <laughs> super fun guy. If any of you hunt mushrooms, mm-hmm. you know that when you hunt mushrooms, you don't take all of it. Or you have a little bag and your bag has holes in it. So you don't do like a clear bag or basket. You have something that has holes in it because when you cut the mushroom and put it in your bag, a lot, it allows the mushrooms to drop spores. So as you're walking around, you're dropping spores everywhere and it's allowing the mushrooms to continue to grow. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Shout out to all the guys, to all the people who are sporing it up out there. That's really good. Yeah. And you don't want to damage the mycelium network because the mycelium network is the lifeblood of the mushroom. That's actually the the mushroom itself uh, or the fungus itself. And then the the fruit body is the mushroom. So the picture, Mm. the mycelium being like the tree, if you will, and then the mushroom being the fruit. So you don't want to damage the tree because then you're not going to get more fruit. So you just kind of like cut what you need and then move on to the next patch. Man, foraging just is so cool. I want to go foraging. It just sounds so fun. 
Yeah, we live in like the desert though. Yeah. We could go to all the cow fields over here. <laughs> yeah, what would we find? Where all the cows are? Uh psilocybin mushrooms. <laughs> oh. <laughs> mushrooms grow on uh uh yeah, psilocybin mushrooms grow on cow poop. Oh, okay. Well, that's one foraging we can do. They love it. <laughs> yep. They practice sustainable fishing methods. They only took what they needed. They also allowed the fish to spawn in their areas without overfishing so they can ensure there's future generations yeah. of fish. And just like hunting, they would do rituals and ceremonies to honor the fish and seek their blessings for a successful catch because that's what you do when you're out there looking for stuff. You're thanking the earth. You're thanking the natural world for providing for you. And you're asking for its blessing. Yeah. And when you give, you take you or when you take something, you give something back. Like giving a blessing. Mm -hmm. They believe in animism, which I've talked about animism before. But if you guys are new to the podcast or don't know what animism is, it's a belief that everything in the na in nature has a spirit, including animals, plants, rocks, rivers, thunder, lightning, it, like natural phenomenons. Everything has a spirit. Mm -hmm. And this belief helps people respect the natural world. And it's kind of a sense of kinship with all living things. You're going to respect the tree because it has a spirit. You're going to respect the water because it has a spirit. So you're not going to damage the tree, pollute, because you, why would you do that? Everything has, that has a spirit, and you don't want that happening to you. Right. And when you did take, you're thanking the spirit for helping you live. Mm -hmm. The land held immense spiritual significance, and they saw the natural environment as a sacred space. And their way of life was deeply intertwined with the rhythm of nature. Landforms such as mountains, lakes, and forests were often associated with specific spirits or deities, which, I mean, you see that today, right? Like there's different mountains, there's different um, rock formations, and they're spiritual. It's, it's something that's connection between you and your tribe and, and the spiritual world. Any variety of spirits and deities that different aspects of the natural world. These spirits were often viewed as benevolent and were revered for their power and wisdom. They also have different stories of creationism, explaining the origin of the world and the roles of each of these spirits. Shamans played a central role in, in spiritual practices. Shamans and spiritual leaders acted as intermediaries between the human and the spiritual world. They are believed to have the ability to communicate with spirits, perform rituals, and provide guidance for the community. They would also engage in various rituals and ceremonies to honor the spirits, seek their guidance, and maintain balance in the natural world. These ceremonies were often tied to seasonal changes, hunting and fishing expeditions, or just important life events. A few of these rituals were the sun dance, which was a significant ceremony event in the Cree, as well as there's a lot of other indigenous groups that also believe that have like this sun dance mm -hmm. ceremony. It was typically held during the summer months and involved elaborate preparations, including the construction of a ceremonial lodge, feasting, dancing, and various symbolic acts, all aimed to seek blessing, renewal, and spiritual strength. So it typically took place during the summer or during the summer months when days were long and the natural world was in a state of abundance. Extensive preparations were taken, often taking several weeks or even months. Wow. So it's like they would prepare for this event. Yeah. And this included the construction of the ceremonial lodge, which was the center of the ritual. The lodge was typically a large circular structure made of wooden poles and covered with hides or other materials. Participants in the Sundance would often engage in fancing, fasting as a form of spiritual purification. They would abstain from food and water for a period of time leading up to the main ceremony. Fasting was a way to demonstrate dedication and spiritual commitment. I know the majority of people don't like to give up food. So when you do that, it's like you're taking it serious. <laughs> Giving up food is not uh, typically not the popular choice. Right? No, not my popular choice. The central aspect of the Sundance involved a series of ceremonial dances. These dances were performed by participants around a sacred tree or pole, often referred to as a tree of life or Sundance tree. The dances were accompanied by singing, drumming, and other musical events. One of the most distinctive features of the Sundance involved a piercing ritual. Whoa. Some participants chose to undergo voluntary piercings of their skin, usually on the cheek or back. Wooden skewers or bone needles were inserted through the skin, and the participants would be suspended from the Sundance tree by ropes connecting to the piercings. 
This act was seen as a powerful sacrifice as a way to demonstrate devotion. Wow, that's pretty intense. Yeah, it's kind of wild. Participants offered, offered prayers and blessings, seeking guidance, healing, and spiritual strength. The ceremony was an opportunity to connect with the spirit world and receive blessings from the creator and other spirits. Now, this was a, com- a communal event that involved the participation of many individuals within the community. It was a time of unity, shared spirituality, and cultural expression. Hmm. The dance would typically conclude with a final ceremony, which often included a feast and further communal activities. It was a time of celebration and gratitude for the spiritual experience shared during the ritual. So this is one of those ceremonies that was banned by the United States government and the Canadian government? Of course. Because you don't want you don't want people uh, practicing what they believe. That's dangerous. Yeah, you can't do that. <laughs> And not until I think it was like the 80s, 70s or 80s yeah. that they um, wasn't even that lifted long. the ban on ceremonies. So there's a ton of ceremonies that I could get in that I could get into, um, but we don't have really time for that today. There's a sweat lodge ceremony. It's also known as a sweat or purification lodge ceremony. It was a significant ritual and it was a sacred practice focused on spiritual purification, renewal, and healing. It was seen as a way to cleanse the body, mind, and spirit, and to renew one's connection with the natural and spiritual world. Interesting. They also participated in vision quests. It was a rite of passage that was undertaken by individuals seeking a deeper spiritual connection, personal revelation, or guidance from the spiritual world. During a vision quest, an individual would go to a remote or secluded location, often fasting and praying for several days while awaiting a vision of significant spiritual experience. It was believed that dreams and visions were a means of receiving messages from the spirit world. Participants looked for signs, symbols, and significant experiences that can offer guidance or insight. After completing the vision quest, participants would return to their community or guide to share their experience and receive guidance on interpreting their visions. The insights gained during the quest were often integrated into the lives and decision-making process. So that was a, that was a very big deal. So they also had pipe ceremonies, a ceremonial pipe known as a sacred pipe held great spiritual significance. Pipe ceremonies involved the sharing and smoking of tobacco, which is believed to facilitate communication with the spirit world. The pipe was considered a powerful tool for prayer blessings and making sacred commitments. The pipe ceremony was also a way for participants to establish a spiritual connection with the creator, offer prayers and gratitude seek guidance and communication with spirits is considered a sacred and powerful practice that fosters unity, respect, and deep sense of reverence for all of creation. The pipe is entrusted to a designated pipe keeper or caretaker within the community. This individual is responsible for its safekeeping, maintenance, and to ensure that it is used in a manner consistent with the cultural and spiritual practices. The pipe ceremony can be conducted by an experienced ceremonial leader who may be a spiritual leader, elder, or designated pipe carrier. Other participants may include community members, family members, or individuals seeking spiritual connections. It is typically held in a sacred and peaceful space, often outdoors or designated ceremonial lodge. It may begin with the lighting of a sacred fire, which is considered a channel for prayer and offering to ascend to the creator. They would offer tobacco, herbs, or other natural materials, to the fire as a form of gratitude, prayer, and symbolic offering to the creator and spirits. Each offering is made with a specific intention, whether it be for healing, guidance, protection, or spiritual needs. The pipe is filled with a mixture of natural herbs or tobacco, which varies among different traditions. It is lit and the smoke is drawn into the mouth and exhaled, symbolizing the sharing of prayers and intentions with the creator and the spirit world. The pipe ceremony concludes with a ceremonial closure, often involving a communal feast, reflection, and expression of gratitude to the spiritual experience that is shared. So that's pretty cool. Um, I know, I don't think we've really talked about pipe ceremonies before. No, I don't think we have. Yeah. So that's pretty awesome to talk about that a little bit. And there's many more. There's seasonal celebrations. There, like the summer solstice, mm-hmm. fall equinox, winter solstice, um, migration rituals. But everything kind of follows the same kind of trend where, or the same format, I would say. You're having a ceremony for a reason. Everything you do is for a reason. There's always intention behind everything. 
Right. And I love it. Yeah. And just having that respect for everything. It's amazing. That's the way we got to think. And like you said, when you take something, you give something. So you're going to, you're wanting to Mm -hmm. give a gift because you're going to take in inspiration. You're going to take in um, a spiritual connection. You're going to take something. So what did they do in that pipe ceremony? They had their commute, their uh, ceremonial fire and they would put herbs in it. They would put tobacco in it. They would put anything in there as a gift because they're about to receive something. Now, spiritual beliefs were passed down through generations via oral tradition, stories, songs, and teachings were shared to preserve their culture and spiritual heritage. And ending on that part of their history, I'm going to go into the story. This story is from the book, Sacred Stories of the Sweetgrass Cree. We'll post another picture of this on our page. So if you guys want to look into this sto- this book, you can find the PDF. I think I went to the Canadian library or whatever, um, the national museum of Canada website. And I downloaded it. Oh, cool. (laughs) I downloaded it. Oh, I thought you were saying you went to the national Canadian, (laughs) like you went physically there. I was like, man, you got on a plane. And I was like, you know what? We're boots on the ground. (laughs) It's for the show. I'm going all in. And this one has, I mean, wow. Oh, let me see. 339 pages. And there are some stories in this book. There are 36 stories. That's amazing. So the story I'm going to read today is called Burnt Stick. So the cool thing about this book is I think because it's so long, it's written in Cree, like the story, the entire story is written in Cree. And then after that's Mm -hmm. done, then the entire story is written in English. Wow. That is really cool. And then I think there's an index in the front of it and it tells you different Cree words. And vocabulary, that's what it is. It says, the texts are part of a series written from dictation during a five-week stay on the Sweetgrass Reservation in 1925. So it gives distinctive sounds of Plains Cree, and it gives constants, vowels, and it tells you how to say everything. It's like an entire, and then it goes into the whole, like, uh, all the stories, and there's text. It's a really cool book. You guys guys will really enjoy it. Yeah. I wish I had a physical copy because it's so old looking. Mm Mm-hmm. God, then I'll just look at it. I just love physical copies of books anyway. Yeah, I hate digital books. Because then they can't take them from us. That's exactly, oh man, thank <laughs> you. That's exactly why. I always buy books. I have like the, Const- I have like the U.S. Constitution. Oh, really? I have like, I I have the Confederate, or the Federalist Papers. I have, um, I have like everything with the U.S. government. I have like all their, all the books, like physical copies. And I told my daughter, I said, you need to read these. And she goes, oh. And I said, you know why I buy books? And she goes, why? I go, because they can't take them from me. <laughs> exactly. You don't, like, they could they could delete your access. Like, I don't think they would go in and look for books anymore. That's too much work for no. the government. They're lazy. But They'd they just go, could mm. if they wanted to. Oh, yeah. They that's could. The, that's the thing. But, well, that's why you got to read it. Mm-hmm. Put it in your head. They can't take it from your head. Or just photocopy a bunch of uh, pages. <laughs> Hide, hide the PDF. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to get into this story about, it's called Burnt Stick, but I have to preface this with, uh, it's this character that's in the book called Wasaka Chuck, and he is the, one of the most renowned heroes in Cree like stories, mm-hmm. and he's a central figure in a number of tales. Sometimes he plays pranks on his siblings, animals, rocks, <laughs> and these stories collectively referred to as story cycles. They carry moral lessons and are intricately connected. They're passed down through generations and everything's kind of different. Like, well, they're all the same, but they're slightly different. He could, in some stories, he has like these awesome powers where he could transform into any form he desires and communicate with any language or both animals, plants, anything. And his appearance kind of, they don't really talk about it too much. It's kind of a, uh, it's mostly a mystery. Despite being playful, many stories begin with him wandering, hungry, and instead of foraging for food, he often resorts in cunning tactics to coax other creatures into sharing their food or unwilling, unwillingly becoming his meal. <laughs> so he, he's, a, he's a character, and he's in one of these. He's in this story right here. The story is called Burnt Stick. And this is a story I told the first episode, but I wanted to go over again because it is it is such a cool story. Yeah, I really like this story. It's really cool. Once there was a Wendigo, and he made it his goal to eat every human in the world. He would attack every band he came across, destroying everything in his path. He is a two-faced giant that eats the entrails of the people before devouring their flesh. He can shapeshift into creatures or objects, 
run faster than any human, and also has supernatural strength. Even Wasakashak was afraid of it. After one attack, he found that ten young men had escaped during the chaos, so he chased after them, but they were quick and moved often before the Wendigo could catch them. These young men flew so quickly that they forgot their little brother. They went back to the chaos and retrieved their little brother who had survived. The brothers then found a good place far away that seemed to be hidden from the Wendigo. As the older brothers were out hunting, the little brother was taking tasks with keeping the fire going until they returned. One day he stepped on a piece of firewood and a splinter pierced his flesh. The boy pulled the splinter out and threw it out the door of the lodge. Moments later, the splinter transformed into a little crawling girl. She crawled into the lodge where the little brother said, I don't know how to take care of a little girl and neither do my brothers. So he threw her back out. <laughs> That's always my, like the funniest part. Just tossing her out there. Yeah. Moments later, she came back into the lodge. This time she was walking, but again, the little boy threw her out. And again, she came back and this time saying big brother, but the boy threw her out again. He thought maybe when she returned, she will be a young woman. And if she has been sent to us by the spirits, she will stay with us. This time, the girl returned and she was a young woman. The little boy grabbed her hand and said, come sit down, big sister. And he gave her the name Burnt Stick. When the brothers returned, they were thrilled to have a sister that could do the woman work for them, cook and clean and sew and take care of them. Now at this time, Wasakashak was staying with the brothers because he was afraid of the Wendigo. When he met Burnt Stick, he said, welcome, little sister. And now the brothers knew it was right for her to stay. So for a time, the brothers and Wasakashak would fish and hunt, and Burnt Stick would sew, cook, and tend hides for them, and everyone was happy. Wasakashak knew that they had been there too long, and that the Wendigo probably knew where they were. One day, Wasakashak told Burnt Stick, that him and, and the brothers must leave for four days and instructed her to collect firewood enough for four nights and don't pick up anything else. The Wendigo will try to trick you and you might hear her voices asking to be let in, but it will not be us. She did as she was told. And on the second night, she heard voices outside the lodge crying, please, we're dying. Let us in little sister. She listened to the brothers though. And she did not let him in. When the brothers returned, she went outside and checked uh, where the voices were coming from all around the lodge. And there were no footsteps. He was right. She said later that day, she was collecting firewood when she forgot what was told her and picked up the most beautiful feather she ever saw. All of a sudden the Wendigo came out of the feather and said, I got you at last. You are young and will be a tasty dish when you have been fattened. The Wendigo took Burnt Stick to his home where his grandmother was preparing his meals. He ate two men a day and his grandmother would cook them for him. He told his grandmother to fatten up Burnt Stick so he can eat her. So for a while, Burnt Stick lived with the Wendigo and his grandmother. One day, the Wendigo decided he would eat her. He told his grandmother to prepare her for dinner and he left his house. The grandmother had become very fond of Burnt Stick and did not want to eat her. So she told Burnt Stick to kill her instead and throw her into the pot as a distraction. The grandmother then told Burnt Stick that after she had placed her in the pot to run towards the four hills, and when you are over the fourth hill, you will see an iron house. You must knock at the door and say, Big Brother, please help me. The Wendigo wants to eat me. So Burnt Stick grabbed an axe and hit the grandmother in the head then skinned her, chopped her up into pieces, and placed her in the pot. After that, she ran as fast as she could over the, to the four, over the four hills. As Burnt Stick was running for her life, the Wendigo arrived home to his meal. He started eating and discovered this was not Burnt Stick he was eating. It was his grandmother. He was furious and screamed, Burnt Stick, you cannot get away from me. I will follow you everywhere and eat you. Burnt Stick was tired, and when she reached the fourth hill and could see the Wendigo closing in fast, she reached the iron house and banged on the door, screaming, let me in. The door didn't open. Then she remembered the grandmother's words, and she screamed, big brother, help me. The Wendigo wants to eat me. The door swung open, and the man said, sister-in-law, come sit. 
By this time, the Wendigo was almost to the open door and ready to pounce when the young man grabbed his axe and chopped his head off. Now, Burntstick was safe, and she decided to stay with the young man and his wife for a while to recover. One day, the young man said, your brothers miss you, and you need to return home. The young man told her of the dangers that she will face on her journey. One from an evil man that climbs on trees and jumps onto women, crushing their bones. <laughs> so Burntstick was, <laughs> that's insane, dude. Like, you're just going to climb on a tree and then be like Spring Hill Jack? That, We're just going to be all jam. the nasty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He gets off on jumping on crushing women. That's so weird. It's the only way he can get a date. So Burnstick decided she was dressing in men's clothing to trick him. She packed provisions and went on her way. After some time, she was met by the evil man. He saw that she was also a man, so he offered to give her her food and his house to replenish her supplies. Burnstick accepted the offer because she wanted to keep the ruse going. On their journey back to the house, the man figured out Burnstick was a girl. Burnstick had also figured out that he knew that the jig was up. <laughs> so she picked up a large stick that she used as a cane. As they reached the evil man's house, he told her to go inside. He wanted to shock her because inside the house were the crushed, broken women he jumped on. So he would jump on women, then drag them into his house like a creepo. That's gross. While she was inside of his house, he climbed into a large tree and waited for her. She knew his tricks, and when she went out of the door, she turned the walking stick into iron. So when the man jumped to crush her, he impaled himself and died. Burntstick then returned to the evil man's home and healed all the broken women and resurrected the dead ones. She asked 10 of the women if they would go back with her to her brothers and be their wives. When 10 of the women agreed, they were off back home. When Burntstick arrived with the women, she saw her brother's mourning say, The Wendigo has eaten our little sister. She is dead. She ran towards her brother saying, I am alive and the Wendigo is dead. I have brought you these women to be your wives. The brothers celebrated and had a large wedding. A few days after the wedding, Burntstick told the brothers, I must leave. I am not human and my father wants me home. I will turn into a deer and in that form, I will leave you. I have finished my work I was sent here to do. Wow. So that was a story of burnt stick. <laughs> See, the Wendigo is not as scary when you think of um, uh, preparing dinner with like utensils and cooking in a pot and stuff. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of a uh, scary Terry. Yeah. Do you but watch Rick and Morty? Just, yeah. I've, yeah. Did you see the scary Terry episode? Where it's kind of like because they can't do copyright and it's all I, uh, IP, so they can't do Freddy Krueger. Yeah, he has. Yeah, he looks just like him though. <laughs> yeah, and then and then he literally goes home. He's all, "Oh man, this again, bitch!" And she's all, "You talk like that out there. You don't talk like that inside <laughs> of the house." And he's like, oh, "I'm sorry." So he has like a, a kid and a wife, and he, you know he's cooking dinner and eating his food, and then he clocks into work and he's like come here bitch yeah. and he starts like attacking the night dreams and stuff so yeah the wendigo he doesn't seem that frightening when you're like oh let me hang my hat up mm -hmm. granny did you make some soup yeah he lives i'm hungry for two men yeah he lives with his <laughs> grandma oh man what a jerk it's such a cool story though i like that Cool. Well, that was the episode. That was part one of the redo, the Wendigo. So yeah. I hope you guys enjoyed it and stay tuned for next episode when we get into the creepy, crawly, spooky stuff. And then Gabe goes over, uh, he's going to go over the same story that he did of Swift Runner, but also include a ton of other information. Yeah. So get ready for that next episode. So if you guys liked it, please rate and review us five stars, leave a comment. And since you're there already, go ahead and screenshot that. Send it to info at behillnetwork.com. That is B-E-H-I-L-L network.com. And make sure you include your alias and your mailing address because we will send you some stickers. Yeah. I have had multiple, <laughs> multiple reviews sent to me. And then I have to write them back. Um, yeah, I didn't get your address. So <laughs> you need to send your address. One person sent it today and they literally responded like, five minutes later and went, I guess you need my address and then put their address in. So that was kind of cool, but make sure you do that. And we, that's just a little thank you for helping us out by rating and reviewing us. Yeah. Also, if you want to share, there's a share button, share to so your social media, make sure we blow this podcast up so we can get it out there to the masses. So voices can be heard. And you know what, even though 
the creepy spooky season has passed. If you have listener tales, feel free. Send listener tales in. Let us know if we can use your name. If you would not like us to use your name, you want to be completely anonymous. We will we will protect your privacy. We will not let anyone know because I know some of these stories are a little creepy. Mm-hmm. People live in small towns and sometimes you don't want everyone up in your business. Right. So please send those in to infobeelnetwork.com. Also with your with the comment or, or the subject line being listener tale or story or anything like that. Well, we read all of them. Yeah. Also, please follow us on our social media accounts at indigenous underscore tales at Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. And we post video, little short video clips, stuff that happened in the show, special events, news announcements. Uh, we also post social justice petitions that can help with certain things, whether it be social justice or environmental um, petitions that help. We just had one recently that we've had up there that we asked you to sign for the Shumash Marine Sanctuary. If you want to check out our merch, go to indigenoustales.threadless.com. Remember, the holidays are coming up. Any of the holidays or birthdays, there's all kinds of stuff. It's the end of the year. Get a hoodie. I think we bought like five or six hoodies. And then my nephew at, I don't know, my cousin nephew that's (laughs) (laughs) at Granny's when we were there, he was all, hey, Uncle Joseph, I like your merch. And I was all, cool. And he goes, how do I get it? And I go, I got you, bro. I said, you want a shirt? And he goes, nah, just make it a hoodie. And I'm all, oh, so we're just going all out. That's what we're doing. And I was like, you're lucky you're in fifth grade, son. And I said, Uncle Joseph got you, kid. Don't worry about it. You are. All right. (laughs) Yeah. And I, yeah, I I love, yeah. But make sure you go check out some of that stuff. Stay tuned because this month we will have a couple of discount codes. There's definitely going to be a Black Friday sale and there's definitely going to be a holiday sale and there might be a pre-holiday sale coming up shortly. So make sure you stay tuned to our social media for those announcements. Yeah. So thanks for sticking with us, guys. So until next time, I'm Joseph. And I'm Gabriel. You'll be remembered by the tracks you leave. And remain close to the great spirit. If you don't pay attention, the Wendigo's going to get you. Oh, no, I don't like that. <laughs> hey, everybody, I'm Japers, and I'm going to tell you <laughs> that the Wendigo might come out and get you. I thought you were so go say, ahead and buy my T-shirt. I thought you were going to say he's a Wendigo. I'm not a Wendigo. You can talk to me. I'm right here. <laughs> okay, bye. Damn, Jeepers. He sneaks in sometimes. Yep. Bye. If you're not spiritually connected to the earth and understand the spiritual reality of how to live a